They say that the best place to start a story is from the end. So let's examine where we are at the moment. Current president and former prime minister of the Russian Federation, Vladimir Putin, has launched an insurgency against Ukrainian sovereignty. Being that Putin has continuously been in office since the presidential election of the year 2000, he has been in control of Russia for quite some time. To put things in perspective, Stalin himself controlled the Soviet regime for a total of 27 years, from 1927 to 1953. This puts Putin as the longest-serving Russian ruler since Stalin, as the next closest was Brezhnev who ran the Soviet Union for 18 years. As such, he is a well-established figure on the world stage. But who is Vladimir Putin? That's what we're going to try and decipher today. Before I dove into this subject, I really didn't know much about Vladimir Putin. All that I knew was that at one point or another, I heard that he was a former KGB agent. While that is true, to write this podcast, I wanted to connect what we are seeing today in Ukraine to his past, as I believe that his former life in the Soviet Union is a key component to deciphering what the thought process is behind his actions today. So let's lay down a few basics. Vladimir Putin was born on October 7th, 1952 in Leningrad. This was at the very end of Stalinist Russia as Stalin died of a heart attack on March 5th, 1953. According to the propaganda that was put forth by the Soviets, Russia had been at its strongest during Stalin's reign of terror. In the future, former Soviets would look back on this past time as the good old days, during which time millions of people were killed. After Stalin's death, there was a short power struggle which shook the Politburo to its core. By the end, Nikita Khrushchev had risen to power and a number of his former colleagues were excommunicated or dead. During this time, according to Putin's biography on the Kremlin website, which I have been taking with a grain of salt, Vladimir attended primary school in Leningrad from 1960 to 1968. He was a rather average student. Vladimir was quoted as saying, quote, I was always late for my first class, so even in winter I did not have time to dress properly. But by the time Putin reached sixth grade, he apparently began to find himself through sports and other physical activities. In 1970, Vladimir began his path towards working in the KGB. He first earned his law degree from Leningrad State University, and then after graduation in 1975, he attended the KGB school number one of Moscow. Here's where Putin's bio becomes a bit scarce. While it fills the timeline, it doesn't really offer any information of what he was actually doing. So let's finish the Kremlin's short version of events and then provide some background for what was going on at the time. According to the Kremlin, he was appointed to the Directorate Secretariat, then the counterintelligence position, where he worked for five months. Half a year later, he was sent to operations personnel retaining courses. Mr. Putin spent another six months working in the counterintelligence division. That was when he drew attention from the foreign intelligence officers. According to Putin, quote, fairly quickly, I left for special training in Moscow, where I spent a year. Putin then spent the next couple of years at various stations before eventually attending the Andropov Red Banner Institute before he was to be deployed in East Germany in 1985. Yuri Andropov was the chairman of the KGB starting in 1967. He was known for his particularly violent methods of maintaining order and suppressing dissension within the ranks. Most memorably, Yuri Andropov was the ambassador to Hungary during the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. 
To suppress the revolution that was at first instigated by college students, Russia sent in the Red Army, who, to disperse the crowds, fired weapons into the groups indiscriminately. In all, it is estimated that 26,000 Hungarians were then tried and imprisoned or executed. Later in 1968, Alexander Dubacek entered office as the first secretary of Czechoslovakia. Dubacek, while still a fervent communist, could be seen as a communist reformer. He believed in a doctrine called socialism with a human face. During his time in office, Dubacek loosened restrictions on free speech and began to implement policies of rehabilitation for political prisoners. But the Soviet Union knew that these measures would ultimately weaken their grip on the region, even though Dubacek ardently voiced that Czechoslovakia had no intention of withdrawing from the Warsaw Pact, which was the Soviet Union's version of NATO, or of abandoning its socialist roots. Under the command of Yuri, to suppress the freedoms of the Czechs, quote, 30-odd KGB illegals posing as Western tourists were instructed to put up inflammatory posters and slogans calling for the overthrow of communism and withdrawal from the Warsaw Pact. These measures were designed to frame the Czech government as separatists and give the Soviets justification in their view to invade. According to Gordievsky, a former high-ranking KGB agent who defected in 1985, his brother told him that, quote, the KGB had been behind the planting and discovery of arms caches, which Pravda instantly denounced as evidence of preparations for an armed insurrection by Sudeten revanchists. The East German Party newspaper News Deutschland went one better and published photographs of American troops and tanks inside Czechoslovakia. The origin of the photographs, never admitted in the East German press, was an American war film then being made in Bohemia with the assistance of Czech soldiers dressed in 1945 U.S. uniforms and tanks painted with U.S. markings provided by the Czechoslovak army in return for payment in hard currency. The invasion commenced on August 20th, 1968, and, quote, the main military objectives of the invasion were achieved in less than 24 hours. This was the Yuri Adropov that Putin knew. For both of these aforementioned quotes, I am actually taking them from a book that was written by Oleg Gordievsky and uh, Christopher Andrew called KGB, The Inside Story. It was actually written by the two of those men after 1985 when Gordievsky escaped the KGB. We are going to use it as our main source for the following information about what was going on a little later in the Soviet Union. While Yuri was running the KGB, Putin watched as what has been termed, quote, the era of stagnation occurred under the bureaucratic control of Brezhnev. Brezhnev took control of the Soviet Union in 1964 after he, in a coup with the KGB, deposed Khrushchev. It is recorded that Khrushchev left the Kremlin for a holiday on the Black Sea in the autumn of 1964. At the time, the Soviets believed that they had been humiliated by their failures related to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and so Khrushchev's popularity had declined. On October 13th, Khrushchev was suddenly recalled to Moscow for an urgent meeting of the Presidium. He was met at the airport by his son, Semichesny. It is from his account which we get the following information. 
It was proposed by some members of the Presidium to arrest Khrushchev, but they ultimately decided against it. Instead, they decided to allow him to disappear into the background quietly. And Dropov, who was at the time one of the plotters helping to remove Khrushchev, stated, quote, If Khrushchev is stubborn, we shall show him the documents that bear his signature about the arrests that took place between 1935 and 1937. Knowing that if he attempted to fight back, he would be arrested and likely executed, Khrushchev offered no resistance. In return for his going quietly, he was allowed to keep his apartment on the Lenin Hills, his dacha, his car, and was given a pension of 500 rubles a month. 500 rubles at the time was equivalent to about 504 US dollars, or $4,643 today. Khrushchev then lived his final years relegated to the dustbin of time. He died in 1970. In the Pravda announcement of his death, Nikita Khrushchev, a man who had sentenced thousands of people to die and who was one of the closest men to Stalin, was simply described as a pensioner. After the removal of Khrushchev, Brezhnev took control of the Soviet Union. One of the reasons that the Brezhnev era has been termed the era of stagnation was because the average age of the Soviet's leadership went from 56 to 68 years old. The other was that at, as time went on, the old men could no longer maintain their hold of terror on all the USSR's territories. Until the collapse in 1991, the Soviets became weaker and older until they and their fiefdom eventually died. Other than mentioning that Putin was married in 1983 and that he had two daughters with his then-wife, Ludmila, they divorced in 2013, the information here becomes even more slim. He was awarded for his local service in Germany, and around 1990, he moved back to Leningrad, where he worked at Leningrad State University until 1996. During this time, he began working in local government. After starting work in City Hall, Putin filed his resignation from the KGB. In 1996, Putin moved his family to Moscow, where he was offered the post of Deputy Chief of the Presidential Property Management Directorate. Rather matter-of-factly, his bio states that, quote, In March of 1997, he was appointed Deputy Chief of Staff of the Presidential Executive Office and Chief of Main Control Directorate. He continued his ascension within the ranks through 1998, and in August of 1999, Putin was appointed Prime Minister of the Russian government by President Boris Yeltsin. As Putin later recalled, quote, Mr. Yeltsin invited me to come and see him and said that he wanted to offer me the Prime Minister's job. Incidentally, he never used the word, quote, successor in his conversation with me then, but spoke of becoming, quote, Prime Minister with prospects and said that if all went well, he thought this could be possible. Keep in mind that this is all being stated as the Kremlin has published. Within a few months, Yeltsin decided to step down as president, and can you guess who he chose to become acting president? On December 31, 1999, Vladimir Putin became acting president of the Russian Federation. He then won the following presidential elections in 2000 and again in 2004. In 2005, Putin appointed Dmitry Medvedev, who had been one of his staffers previously, to be the first deputy prime minister. In 2008, Dmitry was elected president, and he used his presidential power to make Vladimir Putin prime minister once again. 
In 2012, Vladimir was once again elected as president, and he has held the office in every election since. So there you go. An overview of Putin's rise to power and a brief overlook of a few things that happened during that time. Based on this new information and our previous podcast, Episode 2, where we broke down Putin's speech during which he provided his justifications for the recent invasion of Ukraine, I believe we can create an accurate sketch of Vladimir Putin. During the 70s through the early 90s, Vladimir watched as the USSR collapsed under its own weight through Brezhnev's stagnation. He blames this collapse on the poor leadership of the Soviet Union and sees his predecessors that came after Stalin as weak. In his mind, he discounts Reagan's intervention and instead blames the Soviet administrators for the dissolution of the Soviet state. Putin is a man whose innermost being wishes to be seen as a virulent and powerful world leader, the opposite of Brezhnev's old cronies. He wishes for Russia to once again be a world superpower. Since the fall of the USSR, Russia has been relegated to the corner of the world viewed as, quote, the world's gas pump. As the world's second largest exporter of oil and third largest exporter of natural gas, Putin hopes to use his leverage to wield worldwide power from the Kremlin once again. But here is a cautionary tale of which Putin should be wary. We know that for a fact that towards the end of Stalin's life, copies of Pravda which were given to him were specifically tailored for his eyes only. Even though Pravda was already controlled by the Soviet propaganda arm, the copies given to Stalin were designed to offer a picture of the Soviet Union through rose-tinted glasses. At the end, Stalin himself was misinformed by his closest associates as to the reality of the world inside and outside Russia. I believe that Putin is living in a similar echo chamber. As we've seen in the past few weeks, as the Russians have continuously failed to take over Ukraine, their military prowess is not nearly as fearsome as it used to be. For example, according to Task and Purpose, a U.S.-based military tactics and news organization, Russian estimates of lost aircraft currently account for, quote, 32 helicopters and 13 fixed-wing aircraft. However, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense claims to have taken down 81 airplanes and 95 helicopters. It's likely that the actual numbers are somewhere between the opposing published accounts. Either way, considering the near 5 to 1 advantage of the Russians, the losses are somewhat baffling. The Task and Purpose article explains it this way. Russian pilots are at greater risk while trying to achieve this mission because of the technology they work with. While the U.S. Air Force has used precision-guided munitions to great effect since at least Desert Storm, the Russian Air Force has nowhere near the same quantity of so-called smart bombs. Instead, Russian pilots must use unguided dumb bombs, but to use them accurately, pilots have to fly low and slow, which makes them vulnerable to, to attack from the ground. In effect, the Russians are still using technology that last saw its mass use during World War II. Additionally, the VKS, which is the acronym for the Russian Air Force, is significantly undertrained, according to Task and Purpose. To make matters worse for the survivability of Russian pilots, VKS aviators have nowhere near the training or experience expected of most NATO pilots. Most VKS pilots get 100 hours or less of flying a year, which is about half flown by NATO pilots. They also don't have the same advanced simulators for keeping sharp on the ground, and they rarely practice large air operations like those put on by the U.S. Air Force's Red Flag Exercise. 
What it is looking like at the moment is that Putin has overplayed his hand in Ukraine. While due to sheer numbers, the Russians may eventually take over the country, it is reassuring to see how much of a ghastly failure this invasion has been. Now, my prediction is that the Russians are going to have to continue saber-rattling to scare off the West and to keep them from intervening in Ukraine anymore. They'll either take a portion of Ukraine at the end of this, and it is, as part of the peace talks, they'll try to uh, take over a part of Ukraine and instead the whole country. And or they will take the literal nuclear option where they will take and uh, threaten to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, which is a, a distinct possibility at this point as it's a I believe it would be a massive bluff, but it could likely scare off a lot of our Western leaders. So it's going to end up in one way or the other over the next few weeks. Hopefully we'll see a resolution that's favorable, but it's one of those things where the differences between what could happen and what will happen are going to be fairly wide. So remember that in 1968 that the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia was essentially over within 24 hours as the Russians had already achieved all their military objectives. So we're seeing that the Ukrainians are holding out much better than the Czechoslovakia did back then. Of course, now they've been a sovereign nation for enough time that they've been able to at least do some bare minimum preparations. Thank you guys so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Again, my name is Donnie. I'm from Oxus Practical Defense. What we do is we help people and companies to organize their security around a worldwide framework of defense. We want people to be prepared to understand what has happened in the past and what could happen in the future. And that's part of why we do this podcast is that it's a, uh, a mind exercise to understand what's going on today and how it applies to the past. And we believe that that should be something that you do in your day-to-day -day life is you should go through and evaluate what happens and what I can do about it to be prepared for contingencies. So thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate it. If you want to follow us on Facebook or on Instagram, you can find us on Facebook. We're Oxus LLC or on Instagram. It's oxus.practical.defense. So you can find us on either of those. Our website is also oxus.llc and we have a instant chat feature through there. So if you would like to contact us, you can chat with us through there. Thank you guys so much for listening and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Bye.